usually how I like to, to start these conversations is about an individual's journey and, and your career path has been pretty impressive in, in all the stuff you've done so far. Uh, so kind of take us just through your career journey and arc to get to Unreasonable. So I was born and raised in Australia, a very proud Aussie, and um, <laughs> feel very, very fortunate to be sort of raised there. I have a Sri Lankan background. Both my parents are Sri Lankan Tamil. Um, and I think their sort of um, experience, the experience of the Sri Lankan Tamil people is like a real fairly, I guess, informing or kind of influential in, in um, the trajectory of my career and kind of involvement in the political and impact space. Grew up pretty, pretty great sort of um, childhood and kind of early education, uh, both in Australia and kind of moving around um, with my family in the sort of Asia Pacific region. And got into got into university, and have always had kind of a, a passion for politics and the public sector, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty pretty strange, I guess, fascination for a teenager. But um, always found it very interesting. I think honestly, I have to give a lot of credit to just binge watching a lot of West Wing growing up. <laughs> and I'd love to say that I read a, a series of autobiographies by influential leaders, but it was, it was definitely Aaron Sulkin and the West Wing um, that I think kicked off this. That this is so study. great. That is so great. Yeah. I hope you're a fan. If you're not. I know it's, it's I top five, top five show of all time for sure. For sure. Perfect. Yeah, agreed. Yes, and studied kind of uh, politics, economics, and, and business in uni, and was really kind of always been figuring out when the when a step into um, working into politics would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and while at uni, I um, joined a management consulting firm and kind of kicked off working um, in a economics and policy consulting vertical there did lots of really interesting work in government but found sorry consulting to government but found it a pretty pretty slow slow moving way to make progress or make impact um and being i guess wildly impatient um (laughs) quickly kind of um jumped into sort of some of the movements that were happening in the in private sector and in private consulting for kind of big multinationals and that journey brought me across to New York. I um, came across again with my consulting firm, uh, looking to kind of, um, I'd, I'd heard about this impact space, but it was um, at the time um, kind of more in its infancy in, in Australia in terms of the public-private partnerships in the social impact space. While here in New York, dived into sort of work with the UN um, on sort of reform of some of their core organizations and agencies, as well as diving kind of in the opposite direction into M&A advisory um, to just deal work there. Lots of different experiences across the spectrum from working with the UN on issues of trade and investments to working with like large pharmaceutical companies on supply chains or um, working with retail and consumer companies on kind of deals in their space and understanding customers and channels, et cetera. And I think all of that culminated in just like a greater impatience again to be able to, I guess, just like make impact, help create impact or scale it as quickly as possible. And around that time, I was very fortunate to uh, meet my current CEO, Daniel Epstein, the CEO Mm -hmm. of uh, Unreasonable Group, who shared, I guess, the same impatience and the same uh, vision. And that was for 
kind of harnessing the power of venture um, to create impact. Yeah, that, that's what brought me to Unreasonable and kind of doing some of the work that I'm doing today in the impact investment space. Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about about that work with with Unreasonable, sort of, yeah. you know, what your role is and, and kind of what Unreasonable does. Because we actually had Daniel on uh, the episode a while back, but it was more about his story. So if you, if you want to tell us a little bit about what Unreasonable is from, from the venture side of things, from, from the perspective of having, you know, in a, being an a allocator of capital, which to me is one of the most important jobs in the world, <laughs> allocating capital correctly and it has the biggest chance of, of scaling impact, right? So I think, you, you know, you have a really fun job and, and, a, and but like also a really important job, right? So I guess what is the, what's the role of Unreasonable from, from venture point of view? Yeah, for sure. So, um, emphasis, right? Pretty fun job. So I think we're about it. Um, at Unreasonable, um, we basically, we exist to drive resources and those resources are capital, mentorship, and strategic partnerships to growth stage impact ventures. Um, and when we say impact ventures, we're basically looking at ventures that we think are solving some of the most seemingly intractable challenges of our time. And we have kind of an arm of the organization that creates these ecosystems, so it creates networks of multinational corporations to governments to you know thought leaders and basically look to to investors and really drive again that capital and other resources towards ventures to help them scale. Uh, we also have an investment arm um, who direct capital to ventures that come through our fellowship program. When you look at it, the most important part, right, of a lot of what you do is is choosing, right, and selecting. And yeah. That's talk a little bit about that process and kind of what goes into that, and what do you look for like personally, or, or what does the team look at? You know, when when a company is either presented presented right through through a number of different means that can come across your your purview, but are these early stage, like pre-seed, Series A, like what stage? Uh, of the company are, are usually the, the things that you're looking at from, from a company perspective, what stage are they in when they come to you guys? So I think our venture selection is really kind of the, the secret sauce at Unreasonable. <laughs> the team do an, an epic job of kind of, we, we work with this crazy broad array of pipeline partners. So, you know, anyone from traditional private equity to VCs to academic institutions, and really the, the greatest source of our ventures are from our ventures themselves. Um, I mm -hmm. think kind of the, the venture community is like this, it's almost like this Illuminati of people who are crazy enough to be entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> and they have such an awesome network that we are lucky enough to be very kind of tapped into. And what we, what we look for is really, um, it's kind of around uh, any specific problem. So with Unreasonable Future, which is an initiative we're on a kind of second year on right now, which is all about creating an inclusive and equitable future of work. We would take that sort of problem statement or issue area and then look to find almost like this portfolio approach of how you would solve it. Mm. So with the problem of the future of work, we look to say like, who are those ventures that are really disrupting what traditional work looks like? So the best ventures in the space in terms of whether it's AI and machine learning or blockchain or, you know, robotics and 3D manufacturing. And then who are the ventures that are like actively enabling populations and citizens to, 
to reskill and upskill? Like, what are those, what are those ventures? And it's kind of that, like, that portfolio approach or that, that dynamic between different types of ventures to solve for the problem um, that I think is really, really interesting. And to, to answer your question, um, exactly, Grant, we, the, the stage of venture that we look at is, uh, we say growth stage, which okay. means wildly different things across region and industry. We typically kind of, we work with sort of series B-ish type companies, but we have within our kind of fellowship series A to series E ventures. Um, so ventures that have got traction to date, um, they've raised capital, you know, uh, they're, you know, posting kind of healthy revenues, et cetera. And where we think they're really moving the needle on kind of solving the issue. Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, you guys started it, you know, almost two years ago now, but more than ever, right? I think the displacement of not only jobs, but industries, right? is sort of being disrupted by by the pandemic and, <clears throat> excuse me, and what, what kind of COVID has brought on to, to the world of fast forwarding a decade, right? <laughs> In like, mm-hmm six months, which is really, really just a, an amazing opportunity in a, in a lot of ways, right? For, for founders and, and investors and, and workers too, right? I think that, you know, the ability to, to enhance and innovate job sectors and industries is a great opportunity for people to actually, you know, change their career, right? And learn what's possible and what they could do. And this stat really jumped out at me with 75 million jobs will be displaced worldwide through automation between 2018 and 2022. I mean, that that's that might be excelled even more now, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if if automation is is ready yet, right? To to kind of to kind of even eliminate even more jobs, right? But I I saw a stat the other day where, you know, for the first time in I think a decade or two, there's going to be the, the people in extreme poverty is going to rise rather than decrease. So I think that's, you know, a lot of work we have to do, right? Uh-huh. And, and I think that that's a, it was sobering, you know, a, a little bit because, you know, we always think is extreme poverty is, is kind of decreasing, although minimally, but at least going down, right? And, and I think that's what I'm, I'm sort of motivated is how do we, how do we reach, how does technology reach those people, right? How do they create jobs for, you know, the billions of people making less than $2 a day, right? Is that, is that even possible? Can, you know, technology and automation actually create jobs for, for those individuals? And I know that's a really long question, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yes, I, I agree. And I, I think like that stat about the, I think it's the World Economic Forum about the 75 million jobs that could be displaced. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is that, um, equally, they say kind of 133 million new roles could be created. Yep. And that's, I think, what we, what we really have focused on. To answer your question, though, about what would this look like for people who are sort of at the bottom of the pyramid and at, in different kind of geographic areas or economic situations that don't have your traditional pathways and upskilling and reskilling. And it's definitely something that comes into the venture criteria, the ventures that we look for. And a venture that we're kind of, that is in this current future, unreasonable future cohort that really, I think, kind of illustrates how this can be done is a, is a company called Soco Watch. It's okay. based 
based in Kenya. Um, the CEO's name is Daniel Yu. And man, I'm, I'm a super fan of these guys. I can nerd out on these for a long time. Let's too. do it. Let's You'll do have it. To, you'll have to come on. <laughs> they, Daniel, the problem he's, he's solving for is basically, so the informal retail and economy in Africa is valued at over $600 billion per year. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that informal retail economy is made up of these kind of small corner, corner shops and small like vendors that sell basic goods and services. So traditionally, like a, a very large part of kind of the African informal economy is ba- made up of these very small, you know, micro retailers. Right. And what Daniel sought to do was to bring these retailers and these workers into the digital economy and to kind of equip them with the type of access to financial services and access to customer analytics and data Mm. that you see in really sophisticated markets. And how he's done this is awesome. It's kind of, SokoWatch acts as a supply chain and distribution company, as well as kind of a financial services company here. And it basically, it's done a whole bunch of analytics on like what the, although there are huge, like, you know, varied products and services across all of these types of retailers, a large proportion of them, around 80% of that product or potentially more is, is the same. It's the same types of, you know, foods and soaps and, you know, basic mm-hmm, right. needs that you'd have. And they basically, every one of those individual retailers can order products via SMS and get free same day look delivery. Hmm. from localized warehouses that are owned by SokoWatch. So SokoWatch kind of bulk buys from these large MNCs and is able to sell back to these smaller retailers at extremely affordable prices. What it also is able to do, because it has this like kind of chain of communication just by SMS with all of these informal retailers, is it's aggregating like this critical mass of data on, you know, the customer, real-time customer kind of, demand from these retailers. So it understands like sales and analytics and it's able to provide all of this information back to retailers. And what that does is it's kind of, I guess in advanced markets, it may look like what Amazon looks like, but what it effectively does in these markets, it just brings people from the informal economy into like the formal, effectively the formal economy and gives them the same platforms and mechanics that we would see which you know, enables like greater employment and just large scale growth. Yeah. Lots of really exciting ventures like that, um, that we're bringing. Yeah. I, I love, I love talking about, you know, portfolios and, and sort of, you know, what's in them. Cause I think it says so much about, you know, companies and, and people and the ideology of, uh, of an entire brand and, and philosophy and thought process. So are there any other portfolio companies that you're super excited about within within sort of this future cohort that yeah. that, are, that are doing some, I mean, look, they're all doing some amazing things, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think some are, are sort of different than others in, in sort of what they're trying to solve. Um, I think that sure. one obviously was to me a tremendous one because it solves so many, so many issues, but it, it also brings, uh, I, I just think I'm, it's like what Africa has the potential to do is, pretty amazing people kind of they're kind of the sleeping giant where we always talk about china and talk about india but like africa is huge and africa has a lot of cell phones with a lot of people and a lot of potential right and people are really innovating there and it's becoming a hub for 
you know, technology and entrepreneurship, I'm just really optimistic on the future, future of Africa. So that was a really good one that she pointed out. But is there any, sure. any other, uh, any other companies that you want to shout out? Definitely. Um, and just to riff off that, I think a lot of, I guess, teams when they're like, there's a, I guess, a, a gravity towards traditional innovational venture hubs like Silicon Valley, et cetera. But our, our team is really focused on like the innovation coming out of Nairobi from Lagos mm -hmm, to Manila mm -hmm. to Jakarta to Chennai is it's not some sort of like criteria where we're ticking the box to try and find global enterprise it's like these are the hubs of cap venture and innovation and this is where we're like actively excited to be kind of directing capital and resources really excited to be kind of plugged into those ecosystems as well um in time in terms of other ventures I think one that's just on the totally opposite end of the spectrum in terms of, um, but also really interesting is a company called Box Media that we uh, brought into the Unreasonable Future kind of cohort last year as part of this program. And what Box Media does is traditionally, I guess, lifelong learning and corporate education has just been something which is, you know, pretty, pretty boring. People are sitting there, you're right. clicking through, you're trying to make sure your computer doesn't go to sleep, you're just, you know, <laughs> Just clicking through those slides and those activities as quickly as possible. I guess it, it's just this massive market of like, uh, and a massive opportunity in terms of like, how do you continue to educate large workforces? Yeah. And what Box Media have done is they've created, basically, they call themselves the, the Netflix of learning. Um, mm -hmm. And after watching some of their content, I would definitely agree. They basically create bingeable content um, mm. for to kind of reimagine education and the process of learning. They use kind of they have principles of, of neuroscience. They have AI technology, etc., and just like award-winning production quality. And the combination of the three provides this platform for personalized learning. So mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. you're interacting with this content. Um, the you know the platform is understanding like how do you learn best what are ways to best communicate with you what are the best tools to communicate with you whether it's audio visual etc yeah um, and it's it's just like a just such an interesting way to think about like if we have a netflix or a spotify but it's to learn content if we it, especially young people if young people are sitting there being like i'm gonna binge through the <laughs> like i think one of the most interesting examples to me was they they partnered with Pearson, one of our founding partners, and they took, I think, like one of the toughest challenges. And they said with Pearson, they said, how do we rethink calculus? Like, how do we take right. hundreds of hours of calculus content and make this interesting? And they managed to do that. They drastically cut down the amount of time you would need to go through this course and thought about how do you kind of rethink and produce this in a way that's like really uh, engaging for younger people. What's, I mean, what's also fascinating is that what, a, what an amazing way to earn a degree too, right? And as we yeah. see the sort of future of, well, just education in general has been, you know, I think you could make an argument that it's, it's really been more detrimental to, to our society than positive because of the massive debt that, you know, here uh, Americans, and I'm not sure globally how, how it's the system set up, but here in America, we have a lot of people who can't follow their dreams or follow their passions, right? Because they're in so much debt after going to college that, you know, they, they have to just take whatever job comes, right? Just to not 
have this burden of debt and just be able to pay it off. And there's just so many people, I think, stuck in, in, in jobs they don't want to be in, right? In careers they don't want to be in. And then, you know, lives they don't want to be in, right? And then there's the mental aspect of, of that where mental health comes into it. And there's just these domino effects when people can't spend their life doing what they love, right? And, and I think that disruption in education is a must. Mm-hmm. And I think that the idea of, you know, binging like Netflix, right? But it, instead of a, you know, a show, which which is fine, like we all love Netflix, right? I think it serves it, its purpose. But mm-hmm. but even from from a child's perspective, but perspective, or, or high school even, or, or college, or even adult learning, we are learners for life, right? And I think that's the 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 switch that we need to switch on, is not have put learning in a box where you just once college is over, then that's it, you go to work. No, I think that learning is a, is hopefully a 80, 90 year process, right? And, and you're continuing to improve yourself. And I think that, that education and, and, and things like what Box is doing, I think if we can find a way to actually like certify these things and, and, and degree these things and make them hold up in society as a degree from, you know, Whartonwood or something like that. I think that's the next step that this, this digital education has to take because it has to be recognized as just as equally as something you know from from boston college right or university that, that mm-hmm. is trust that is trusted so that's that's where i hope the landscape of digital education can go when we innovate in how we learn right it is such a, a powerful thing right i think they're doing a really interesting job but i also need to think like the innovation of accreditation right? And, and what we accept as society as this sort of quote unquote certificate, right? Or paper that has been holed up as this, this sort of thing that is like a, a, of all glory, right? But then it actually, you get into the workforce and it doesn't really mean that much, right? And it, and it, it could cause a lot of, uh, of adverse effects. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so is that a possibility for not just, I mean, not just box. I, I know that's a, that's probably a long ways away, but do you see any companies that come across or, or that are doing some innovative things in sort of like the degree space, right? Like trying to, to get the mass amount of people to, to recognize that once you take this or you learn like this, like you're a very powerful person now, right? There needs to be like a stamp of approval, right? Uh, of that type of thing. Yeah, we have, I mean, boxes is kind of like, is, um, is, is definitely on the way in terms of getting the accreditations to say like, these are, yeah. CPEs, etc. And to your point, that is is so important, especially in markets like the U.S., where education and tertiary education is is a privilege. Like yeah. the, being in the economic position to be able to get have tertiary education in the U.S. is is not something um, which many can afford. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, trying to find a way to democratize it, um, democratize access to it. But then also just democratizing engagement within education. Mm. So I, I think traditionally um, in educational institutes, there's been one type of learning, which is not very inclusive to how different people learn from different backgrounds, um, potentially with just different disabilities, et cetera. And I think democratizing that engagement and the evaluation is also really important and something we've been looking at, not just for kind of you know, children or tertiary education, but also, as you pointed out earlier, for lifelong education. And one venture that is also doing just such an awesome job of kind of pioneering this path is a company called Classcraft. 
uh, based out of Canada. The CEO's name is Sean. He's awesome. And uh, what the company does is it's basically like gamified your, your engagement within school and not gamified. Like I know gamified gets thrown around a lot and that's like, yeah, yeah. It kind of looks like an old school, like Pac-Man or Tetris or something. You're like, this right, is not right. a game. <laughs> like, this yeah. is not fun for me. This is gamified, like, you know, Fortnite style, where it's just the children engage and it, it effectively, like, you, you have characters, you have missions to reach, you have kind of goals and badges you can collect along the way. And what it's looking to do is to, like, build engagement. And so it's kind of a re it has like, you know, the behavioral science there is how to reward engagement as opposed to like, um, you know, right or wrong or success right. and looking for engagement to lead to like greater results, um, which has been really successful in a number of kind of um, different jurisdictions in Canada. I know they're kind of expanding pretty rapidly as well, especially that, during COVID. Is that schools adopting this, right? Or yeah. is it, okay. Okay, it's that's great. Today, um, I I don't know what the traction has been outside, but I I imagine um, pretty pretty great during this time as well, where we're all kind of gone digital. Yeah, yeah, it's a great opportunity here to for school districts and and communities to to look at a chance to reboot right an education system uh, into more digital experience and and see you know how because I think part of what has been so tougher. For education is that you know you're, you're sitting in a class one teacher has to teach 30 kids but all those 30 kids probably learn i mean mostly they learn differently right like somebody might not learn a way that somebody next to them learns just from looking at a teacher right like writing on a chalkboard or teaching them out of a textbook like some people might learn visually better right from a from a, a game right or, or a video or something like that i know i learn better from like watching something rather than reading uh -huh. it i can't if I read for 20 seconds, I'm off, you know, thinking about whatever, yeah. right? But if I watch a video, I'm, I'm much more laser focused, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, I think it just opens up the opportunity for the ability for all of us to learn how we want to learn. And hopefully these systems can tell us that, hey, you, you learn better at this time of the day, right? Or at night or, you know, when, after you've eaten, right? Yeah. Or after you drank it drank a, a smoothie or whatever, right? Like they, you engage much more in this content than this content. So I think taking, right, the, the, net, the Netflix idea and merging it into to education and, and have the opportunity to, for all of us to learn how we want to learn, I think is, a, is certainly a game changer. I, I want to chat a little bit about your, your global perspective, because I think that's what, you know, one of the amazing things about your, your career and life and journey so far is that you know, you've seen the world from, from a global view, right? And what, you know, what works in, you know, Iowa in the United States or what's work in Canada or Australia or Africa, like we talked about, what, what are some of the things that inspire you like globally? And what are you seeing from, from dealing with different parts of the world? Is there a certain part of the world that, that is doing like Canada and Africa we, we chatted about, but is there, is there another part of the world that's doing some innovative things as you, as you look broadly at, at sort of global venture and entrepreneurship? Like you said, um, I feel wildly privileged to have been able to kind of work and um, kind of study um, in a whole bunch of different continents. And I think the, the most inspiring kind of common narrative that I've seen is in 
areas where there are significantly less kind of economic opportunity mm -hmm. and the innovation that that breeds. And I think that's like your traditional kind of entrepreneurial story where right. you're a lack of resources means you've got to be scrappy and you've got to come up with something. And that level of like the innovation that you see, like we talked about and, you know, in Lagos and in Nairobi and in Chennai and in Delhi and, you know, in Myanmar, like that innovation is, is, is so inspiring to me and it's in every Avenue. I think FinTech has been, mm -hmm. was like, um, has been a very well cited sort of area, especially like in the payment space. Right. But you also see it in like, you know, in mobile health or in in traditional manufacturing and supply chain and distribution, like in Circle Watch and in like the education space, et cetera, where people just have less resources and greater like significantly higher populations. And to me personally, just like directing capital there is not only the right thing to do, but it's mm -hmm. just like, that's where there are financial and strategic returns. And I think like seeing that pattern normalized and seeing impact investment come into the mainstream, not from just like in, you know, ESG or this is the, this is a good thing to do, but just like, whoa, this is a huge economic opportunity in those markets mm -hmm. um, has been, has been awesome to see. And and that that is, I would say, what drives me kind of on a daily basis in this industry. Yeah, I think the, the last thing I wanted to touch on was was a little bit about what you just said, and, and we kind of talk about impact investing. And I look at ESG as a, as a little different, right? Because we're we're sort of dealing with maybe you know, companies that are much more established, Fortune 500 companies that are are trying and, and looking at, and hopefully trying, right? Their their heart is to to make. Yeah. you know, an impact of the world in a positive way rather than um, a negative way. And, and especially from an environmental standpoint, but what do you, are you optimistic about ESG and, and maybe the pressure that's being put on some of these larger corporations to, to maybe, to maybe do things differently right now, now that, you know, technology maybe has caught up and there's, there's more efficient and sustainable way to do things and adopting those things. What, what is the ESG sort of, uh, you know, global dynamic look like from your perspective? And, and are you optimistic about ESG and, and is it going to be valuable and do you think it will be adopted by, you know, the biggest corporations in the world? Yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm um, lucky in, in the vantage point that I have in terms of when we, we form partnerships with large multinational corporations and from kind of being within and forming these partnerships, we can see that it's not... Again, it's not just kind of the social imperative, but it really is a financial and strategic imperative to be investing in these spaces within, you know, ESG. We, we've also seen the maturity of frameworks to measure and evaluate. We've seen, you know, like the, the SDGs um, being in operation for enough time where there are sophisticated ways to measure against them. And there are global standards that have been set in terms of like this is how good actors operate within the space. And to add to that kind of, um, I guess, that history of data there, there's also, I guess, the investments and have matured to a, to a point now that we can see what the returns have been, which, again, creates this, I guess, like a, a precedent to say, like, yeah, this is successful. And it's right. a huge untapped opportunity. 
whether it's in kind of the energy transition to whether it's in like increasing access to financial inclusion. And like, not only is that just the right thing to do, providing access to different groups of marginalized people to financial services, but these are wildly new addressable markets of customers. And I, I think taking on those different perspectives, like from what I've seen, corporations are, are definitely putting their, their money where their voice is there. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you've also seen like you see tradition, a lot of the traditional um, larger kind of private equity firms like TPG, Apollo, uh, KKR have got mm -hmm. these impact funds that are right. deploying right. massive amounts of capital in the space, which is also hugely encouraging. Well, thanks so much, Shankari. It was an uh, amazing conversation. Uh, I think what Unreasonable is doing, I, I think your, your career path is, has put you in like a perfect position. And, and I just think what Unreasonable has the potential to do what, what they are doing, right? I just think it's one of the most you know, innovative you know, companies and, and venture firms in the world. And, and I'm excited to see uh, everything that, that Unreasonable keeps doing um, and, and keeps putting out and keeps just, like you said, just not being patient anymore, right? Like being impatient can be positive in certain areas, right? And, and I think that, uh, you know, it's going to serve the world better when we have sort of impatient people um, that are really smart and deploying capital into areas uh, that really haven't been deployed to before, right? And, and just see what happens. You know, I think there's, there's almost, there's, there's almost no risk there, right? Because I think the potential is, is so great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's so much that, that needs to be done. Like I said, there's billions of people living on less than $2 a day. Like, let's try stuff. Let's be impatient and try to, to, to get those billions of people into the economy more because then that just helps everybody's business, right? Um, it helps every country. Um, so, I think that, uh, um, you know, fascinated by, by, by what you're up to and what the team's up to. And just want to say thanks for taking the time and keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks for just the platform you created to tell these stories is, is awesome. So thank you and good luck with the move. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>